What's up, y'all? You're listening to the My Aggie Nation podcast. I'm Alex Miller with the Eagle. Up there or down here, I don't know which one is it's showing, but that's Travis Brown. He's also of the Eagle, one one might say. What's up, Travis? Not much. Just uh, I'm, I'm working remote today, so we have a little bit of a, a, a Zoom situation instead of our normal studio set, but glad that I could be with you even if it's over the the interwebs. Travis, it's been a while since we've done a podcast. A lot has happened. You actually were away, I think it was last week about this time, entrenching yourself in what they call an Aggie's first tradition, a.k.a. fish camp. That's because your wonderful wife, Lauren, was a namesake, of course. Travis, I just want to know, what was the fish camp experience like for you? You know, it was actually an absolute blast. Um, yes, I, I I did not go to A&M. I did not get to go to fish camp uh, coming into college. And so, uh, you know, got to learn a little bit more. I, I think I've been here long enough to know most of the A&M traditions and where they come from and things like that. But I think anybody who goes to any college can know, can understand that that transition from a senior to high school to a freshman at college, it's a big one and it's a little bit scary. And um, there's a lot of questions you have. So it was just really rewarding to get to go with my wife, hear her give a great speech to the, to the kids about um, transitioning into that first year and kind of watch some kids bond, make some new friends. I know when I went to college, there was a uh, orientation type camp, but there was actually an an orientation. uh, And mm, there was several guys who were in my wedding uh, last year who I met at that orientation. So I know how important some of those early life things are. So it was fun. It was really hot. Um, but, you know, really great to meet some of these counselors and uh, get to know some of them. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, shout out uh, Fish Camp Session G Yellow Camp Brown. There you go. Were there any interesting A&M facts that you did not know that you learned? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm putting you on the spot now. I mean, like I said, I've 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 been here. This is going to be my seventh football season, so I I think you know I the basics. I might know all of them. Um, the one that like I did, I knew that I knew is I knew the whole wildcatting story. I knew that oh. all that meant already. So I think I impressed some people um, with that. Um, yeah. So, uh, no, I think I was, I think I was pretty squared away, actually. You know, I didn't, I didn't go to fish camp. I I went to A&M. I did not go to fish camp. I had friends who were fish camp counselors. And of course, when you hear about fish camp, you hear about the iconic and legendary Iceberry Blue. Travis, (laughs) does Iceberry Blue actually live up to the hype? It is pretty good. So, you know, uh, fish camps at this uh, Methodist uh, Lakeview, it's a Methodist kind of church retreat camp out in East Texas. And um, if you've ever been out to a, a camp, you know, they have these like knockoff juices, like, yeah. uh, you know, like, like, like generic brand juices and whatnot. And they have one, I think it's supposed to be kind of like a Powerade knockoff, maybe like a blue Powerade knockoff, but it's called Iceberry Blue. And actually it like, it lives up. Like if, if that was a Sonic option, I might choose it. I'm, you know, I'm just saying like, it was, it was pretty good. I've I've heard rumors and I'm, I might get some people in trouble with this of counselors, like running back in there and filling their whole like Nalgene up with it to take it home so they could have a little bit when they get home to, to relive that nostalgia. So uh, it's, it's pretty good, but you know, I, I worked some summer camps when I was in college 
um, that had a, a little bit younger demographic, a kind of a high school summer camp uh, at another Methodist church camp retreat place up in North Texas. And it's just fun. It's all about, you know, being excited, getting people excited to have a, f- a fun week. And uh, yeah, a lot of fun, man. I can confirm my sophomore year roommate, he was a fish camp counselor and he had like a gallon jug of milk that he emptied out and he filled <laughs> it up with iceberry blue and put it in our freezer and it sat in there for like a month. And I don't remember what happened to it, but I remember it being in there. And I was like, why did you bring this back? And he said, he, because we pour, pour a little like iceberry blue nightcaps every night. And uh, I, don't, I don't know, but I'm going to have to text him after this episode and get the answer to that story. <laughs> anyway, there has been a ton of things that have happened for a football as preseason practice has been underway for what about three weeks now, Travis. Um, yeah. Let's just, let's just dive right into it. Uh, I think the first thing we can get into is the quarterback competition because it, 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 it is still not officially settled. Although I think, I think that there are allusions to where it could be heading. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think everyone expects it to be Connor Wigman's job to lose. It's Connor Wigman and Max Johnson, of course. The the interesting thing, the quirk about all of this is that this will be Max Johnson's fourth college season. Uh, but he's registered, he's listed as a sophomore, same as Connor Wigman, who played last year. You know, there was a a transfer. He had a medical, uh, uh, he redshirted a year, had a medical red shirt. And so that's why Max Johnson is, is, registered as a sophomore so that's kind of an interesting wrinkle to all of this um but you know i did a story we have our uh, a&m special section coming out here in a couple weeks i did a story on this quarterback battle uh and it's pretty interesting i i think everyone kind of expects connor wigman and just kind of by the eye test saw hey the offense moved better against connor with connor wigman back there than it did max johnson or haynes king the the stats kind of back it up. You know, we look over at a uh, pro football focus, the uh, analytics football analytics website, and they have their own grading formula. Uh, Connor Wegman graded out as the best quarterback in both pass run uh, and off offense. Well, not run. Hanks King was the best runner, but better than uh, Max Johnson. But, but the one that the ones that really sparked my attention was um, Connor Wegman uh, release time on average was 2.84 seconds. That's like uh, a full uh, hundredths, uh, ten hundredths of a second faster uh, than than Max Johnson, and he had a uh, turnover worthy plays. He actually averaged or the percentage about 6.1 turnover worthy plays, but he didn't throw an interception, which shows to me a little bit more of that gunslinger mentality, a little bit more willing to take a risk, but made the right decisions uh, because he didn't have any turnovers last year. Max Johnson only had uh, average uh, two turnover worthy play percentage, which I know that's not necessarily a great stat, but I think when you pair that with the fact that he had no interceptions, that it's, it shows that he, there's a little bit more risk reward there with Connor Wegman. And I like that a little bit better. He, He also had, exponentially better deep passing numbers. I believe Max Johnson actually only completed uh, two passes. Um, He only completed two passes beyond 20 yards. Um, No, actually it was just one pass over 20 yards. He was one for four past 20 yards. Uh, Connor Wegman was uh, five for, 
like uh, five for 14, I believe, uh, beyond 20 yards. So you have a little bit more of that deep threat. And I know we might talk a little bit about wide receivers or, or e- either if we don't, they have some speed guys now. They have some guys that can that can stretch the field and they're going to probably need to be able to make a lot of those deep throws this year. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned those wide receivers. You know, you and I were at the open practice at, at Kyle Field about a week and a half ago. And I mean, the guy that everybody's talking about right now is Noah Thomas. And just from watching him and some of those one-on-one drills, you know, some of the seven-on-seven and even the 11-man drills, I mean, you can see why... Jimbo and some of these other players are raving about him. I mean, he he can he can make some plays and and you know, they they talked about in the spring of the the type of player he was becoming. Of course, we only got a small sample size of that cuz he got knocked out of the game pretty quickly in that in the maroon and white game, but uh he's a guy that I think everybody's kind of watching and waiting to see what he can do on, on the field this fall. Yeah, Noah Thomas grades on PFF as the uh, fifth best Aggie from last year in not dropping balls. He, he, I mean, he, uh, he, he did a really good job of, of controlling passes, and that's something that they've needed. They've had problems with drops uh, the last couple of seasons, so it will be interesting to see with Bobby Petrino, new offense uh, quarterback who has a little can make a few more of the throws. Assuming uh, Connor Wegman is the guy that wins it. Are they going to spread things out a little bit? Um, if you look at their pass charts from last season, no matter who the quarterback was, it was basically in the middle of the field from five yards and from five to 10 yards. And that's where the majority, they, they were running crossing routes. They were running play action passes over the middle. And almost all of their receiving yards came within five yards and 10 yards down the middle of the field. Um, so it will be interesting to see how they can spread that out a little bit. And if they can uh, get some some verticality to that too. You know, I think the biggest question of the offseason surrounding A&M has been, you know, what's going to happen with this offense? What who who is really going to be in charge, whether it's Jimbo Fisher or Bobby Petrino? And I think that was finally settled when we heard from Bobby Petrino at, at AM's preseason kind of local media day about a week and a half ago ahead of that open practice. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's interesting how coy Jimbo Fisher has been with the whole who's going to call plays. Um, what the offense is going to look like. Uh, it was kind of a talking point at SEC media days when you did have some guys who were bringing in some new coordinators, some head coaches, and, you know, they would talk, you know, bringing in a defensive coordinator, they're going to stay with a base uh, three, four, those those kinds of things um, that Jimbo Fisher did not want to get into. I mean, he was asked if it's going to be a little bit more spread like Bobby Petrino has been in the past, or if it's going to be a little bit more play action under center heavy, like Jimbo Fisher has been kind of uh, attached to. And Jimbo Fisher said, hey, you know, Bobby Petrino runs a lot under center. I don't know if the the the, the stats and the um, film will necessarily back that up, but I, it does seem like Bobby Petrino has been handed over the keys. He played a little coy when we talked to him saying it's a collaborative effort. You know, they, they script a lot of stuff, which is true for the most part. But the telling thing is he said, he's been calling all the plays in practice and you're not going to switch. You're not going to give a guy full reins and practice to call plays and then pull that back um, in, uh, in the season. The, the thing that he said that actually intrigued me the most um, was when he was asked about if he was going to be in the press box or not, because he said he's leaning towards the press box or the, the coach's booth, um, which is over on the West side, West stands of, of Kyle field. Um, but he said it, it kind of falls in with what's the demeanor of his quarterbacks when, especially when something goes wrong, um, are they able to shake it off quickly? Are they able to 
to kind of dissect what they did wrong quickly or not. And so I think that'll be telling to see maybe where these quarterbacks are in their development or how much the coaches trust them, depending on in that first game, if we see that Bobby Petrino is up in the booth or if we see him on the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also, like you said, it's 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 been telling in practice just the small sample sizes that we've gotten to see. I mean, Bobby is right there front and center in, in the middle of things with those guys, where in the past, that was Jimbo. I mean, Jimbo was right there coaching them every single play, every single move they made. And and now that that's Petrino, it, Jimbo's still around, you know, we were at the open practice and, you know, the quarterbacks were kind of doing their individual drills and Jimbo was kind of watching from what, maybe about 10, 15 yards away, just kind of, just kind of observing, but he, he wasn't right there in the middle of it where he has been in the past. And so I, I think that all that is to say that, yeah, you're right, Travis. I think, I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that, that Bobby's going to be the main voice leading this offense moving forward. And uh, I think everybody's curious to see how it's going to play out. I think it's interesting too the fact that we haven't been able to see a lot of practices this year. And I know when we go in, it's just limited normally to the, the first 15 minutes, save for that one open practice that they had for everybody. Um, but typically in the past when we've gone, you know, they do some, uh, 11 wide offensive drills where you kind of get to see or get an idea of who's running with the ones who's running with the twos and that can change when we leave but at least from our perspective and and typically in the past when there has been a quarterback battle you've seen the quarterbacks alternate you'll see one day it's you know one guy running with the ones and the next day it's the other guy I'm not saying that that's not happening because we don't have enough sample size. We're not going multiple days in a row, but it is interesting that every time that we've gone, Connor Wegman has been with the ones. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you've gone to maybe one or two more than I have. Uh, you can maybe correct me on that, but I, I, from every, every notes note that I've taken, Connor Wegman has been running with the ones. Yeah. That seems to be the trend that I'm seeing. And, and I'm sure Max is getting some rep, uh, the one reps in, in the scrimmages that we don't get to go to. Uh, but yeah, from what we we've been able to see, and as we're recording this, uh, AM's going to have media access this afternoon for practice, and that's something we'll be looking into when we go. Uh, but yeah, I th- I think you're right, Travis, that it's it's mostly been Connor we've seen uh, running with that one offense. You know, I think something that we've kind of had our eye on, and you know, I think maybe lost in the shuffle a little bit, has been. What's what's going to happen with this offensive line? And and as we've gone through fall camp, it's it certainly continued to be a work in progress. And I, I'll say it, Travis, I think the only spot that is locked down is Trey Zune at left tackle and maybe Bryce Foster at center. Yeah, uh, there's been a lot of of shuffling there. I think Trey Zune has 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 done a pretty good job from what we can see in um, uh, uh, Nobu is a guy who's kind of stepped up uh, and been in there and Bisantis is a guy that stepped in there and has gotten some first team reps uh, Bryce Foster I think you said it, it's, it's probably slotted in to be a one but he's been a little bit banged up he missed spring they've been working out Nobu at uh, Nabu at center uh, there and getting some reps and uh, Chase Bisantis as Ruben Fathery has been slow to get back into the the swing of things has been. So it it could be a situation where we start to see some of those guys get a little bit of playing time early and see where they fit in. But you would think Ruben Fathery, Layton Robinson, uh, uh, Foster, uh, and Trey Zune uh, for sure are are, are slotted in there and and, and guys to go. 
that's been the thing that I've said all season is that this AM team is going to go the way that the offensive line does. Um, because last year they were so bad that it was hard for any of the quarterbacks necessarily to get in a rhythm, to have enough time uh, to let plays develop, to get things going. Their pass blocking was not good. Run blocking was a little bit better, still not great. Uh, and so if that offensive line can step up, they have the weapons offensively outside to, to move the ball, score some points and, 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 keep up with teams this year like they weren't necessarily able to last year it just depends on if that offensive line has made improvements they didn't really bring in anybody from uh the the outside from the transfer portal they do have freshmen in in um Basantis who has kind of stepped up and started taking some first team reps because of some injury uh so that could potentially help but I'm just really curious to see how much of the strides they've been able to make over this offseason um because I think that's going to be the biggest question mark of the whole season is is what is the offensive line going to do you know a guy that Jimbo raved about the other day was Demetrius Crownover at uh tackle and just you know he mentioned him multiple times like and it, it kind of, I think it kind of caught a bunch of people by surprise like Crownover all of a sudden like I mean he wasn't really a guy that I think was has been on our radar but clearly he's he's become one of the one of the guys that's emerging to to possibly push for some playing time here where, you know, Anum's kind of still playing maybe a little musical chairs trying to figure out who their starting five is going to be. Which is interesting because uh, Cranover is also a guy that they kind of tried out as a blocking tight end a little bit last year too mm-hmm. uh, and kind of have moved him around um, a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, that's another interesting one to look out for on that offensive line. He, he's a he's a big dude. He's a, he's yeah. a really big dude. And his brother is a pretty big running back, too. Yeah, exactly. I just think it's interesting. We're going a little bit back to the look at pro football focus. There wasn't an AM offensive lineman last year that graded above uh, a 68 in uh, in in blocking of, of any, or excuse me, above a 72 in blocking of any type. Um, run blocking was a little bit better. Um, pass blocking, not so great. You know, tight end has all of a sudden become a point of discussion uh, for the Aggies with Donovan Green suffering that season-ending ACL injury in the scrimmage on Saturday. But I, I guess, fortunately, if you're A&M, they've got some options to to choose from going forward. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because even uh, it's Jimbo Fisher kind of confirmed last time that um, that uh, Donovan Green, who who is lost for the season with an ACL, was actually a little bit banged up coming out of the spring, so he was slow to get integrated back into fall camp. And because of that, Jake Johnson had been running most of the reps with the ones. And so I kind of assumed before we knew that, that there was some injury problems there with Donovan Green that Jake Johnson had passed him. Um, he's put on weight. He is not the kind of string bean that he was last year. He's a he's a big looking dude. Uh, and looks like he can be that pass catching threat uh, that AM uh, needs at that position. They also have Max Johnson, oh, excuse me, Max uh, Wright, who is uh, more of the blocking tight end. He's not going to necessarily go out there and catch any of those passes, but uh, does really well in blocking. Uh, actually, he was their uh, fourth best pass blocker last year um, as far as um, grades on, on pro football focus. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Jake Johnson's an option. Theo Melnostrom, the, uh, the, the Thor, the, the, the Swedish, uh, number one, uh, commit or number one recruit from two years ago, uh, said he's, uh, Jimbo Fisher said he caught eight passes in the scrimmage the other day and is kind of 
found his stride in, in America when it comes to football um, could be another option there as well as far as pass catching. You know, we talked about this, what, uh, a year ago on signing day when it, when there was like eight guys in the tight end room and how are these guys going to get all these reps? No, no one has that many guys in a tight end room in 2023 in college football. Um, but it seems like these guys are developing and there's definitely options there. So it's yeah, they, they lost a key player, a guy that caught a lot of passes last year, but it's a position maybe other than defensive line where they have the most depth. Yeah, I think Theo is a guy that really intrigues me because, you know, last year he came in, you know, the, the frame was there, but I think people forget he was like, what, 17 when he showed up to campus? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he reclassified a, a year ahead of schedule and uh, you could tell it just, you know, he, he could he could develop into a guy maybe that that could, you know, contribute down the road, but he just was not he was not there yet last fall. And just watching him in practice this year, I mean, it just seems like he's made a ton of strides and that he is really progressing his game. I'm not saying he's going to be the guy all of a sudden, but I'm saying I think he's a legit option if A&M goes to him uh, this fall. When you have to consider something, too, when he was over in Sweden, he went to like an all football academy where he took some some courses, but then practiced football a lot. And it was kind of a boarding school type situation and then played club American football in Sweden where he's playing against grown men um, who, yes, most of which probably didn't, you know, grow up in America and play American football here. But needless to say, are, are good athletes and strong, big guys. And so he he's gone up against strong, bigger guys, bigger than him. It doesn't surprise me that he's been able to kind of develop and, and take on that challenge because he's faced in, in a different way, some similar challenges just in his development through through high school. Well, I think we covered just about all the ground we can on the offensive side. Uh, let's talk a little defense for a minute, Travis. And I think I think on defense, for me, the cornerback spot is is maybe one that is kind of interesting trying to figure out what's going to happen. It, it seems like Tyreek Chappelle is probably a lock to be uh, a starter on one side. That shouldn't be a surprise. He's started as a freshman. He's coming into his third year now. But on the other side, a guy that's emerging that I think uh, is interesting and somebody that Jimbo mentioned in his press conference this week is, is Javon Thomas, the the freshman out of South Oak Cliff. And that, I don't, I don't know if I'm surprised, I guess maybe I just wasn't expecting it because, you know, I, that's where A&M really hit the transfer portal hard. This, this off season was cornerback. You know, they brought in Tony Grimes, Josh DeBerry and uh, Sam McCall, you know, guys with, they're all from ACC schools with, with a good amount of experience. And then kind of, kind of here coming in at, maybe, maybe a little out of the blue is, is this true freshman from, from South Dallas with a couple state titles to his name. Yeah. You know, I think everyone kind of thought it was Tony Grimes uh, position to lose, but we're hearing about Sam McCall, Josh DeBerry, JV uh, Thomas. And so, uh, you know, I don't think anybody has ever really been worried about the secondary. You have uh, Damani Richardson coming back. You have Bryce Anderson. Um, you have uh, plenty of guys uh, in that secondary, especially at safety. You have Tyreek Chappelle coming back. There was experience there. Now, I, it's it's interesting they went out and got so much more experience because they needed to grab a guy or two, but they grabbed a lot of guys. And so um, they they did have – 
one of the top ranked pass defenses in the country last year. It's a little bit skewed because of how um, easily teams were able to run against the Aggies. They didn't really pass it a lot. You go back to that Auburn game where they threw one, the first pass they threw in the game was like with a minute left in the first half. Uh, And so some of that is skewed, but they did bring back talent. You still had to make plays to be able to get that highly ranked. Uh, And so I I think that that's one of those situations that kind of no matter where they go there, um, it's probably going to be a a plus for them because they, 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 I have no real question marks about the secondary. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think, I think nailing down that other cornerback spot is definitely the biggest question mark. But, but aside from that, I mean, you look at safety, uh, for example, I think safety is where they have a ton of depth because, Oh, that's, I did not mean to play that. (laughs) Um, I'm just trying to pull up Javon Thomas's stats from South Oak Cliff last year because he played a little bit on offense too. Um, he, uh, uh, I, I think when you look at safety, you obviously have Damani coming back. Uh, you have Jordan Gilbert coming back. And then, you know, Bryce Anderson's expected to step into that nickel kind of star position uh, for Antonio Johnson, who went to the NFL draft, of course. And then, you know, waiting in the wings, you've got Jacoby Matthews, who's really tall, really long, and really big. Uh, that dude is huge. And then you got Jared Kerr, who is just a really good athlete. So I think at safety, a pretty good. For me, it's that second cornerback spot that uh, I'm really curious about to to see what they're going to do. You know, looking at looking at South Oak Cliff last year, you know, Javon Thomas, he, he played both ways, uh, carried the ball some, had five touchdowns. Uh, and then on defense, if I can pull that up, um, where is he? Here, here he is. He, I mean, just just a really good season um, overall, uh, all things considered. And he he's he's just a really good athlete. When 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 you when you look at it, I mean, just watching them in the state championship game the last two years, because you know we we were up there covering College Station at the same time. Uh, he just just really good athlete. Uh, for sure. So I'm definitely, I think that second cornerback spot, as I've said, is, is kind of the one that I'm looking at. And and you have to play into a, take into account here too, that uh, both Mike Elko and I believe DJ Durkin play with a boundary field corner system. Um, and so playing into which of those guys can fit into that specific position role. I want to say Tyreek Chappelle was usually the boundary corner um last season and so uh just trying to kind of fit into who can play field side play with a little bit more room is going to be the guy that you're going to want to to fill that other position you know something i think that might have flown a little under the radar this this offseason is that you know dj durkin he he's coaching linebackers now with tyler santucci going to to duke to be with mike elko uh and something that something that i find interesting is you know that seems to be AM's thinnest position yet again. You know, they've they brought in a lot of young linebackers, but uh, you know, and they and they have Edger and Cooper and Chris Russell coming back, but you know, behind them they're they're really relying on some youth. You know, I'm I'm curious to see what having Durkin, you know, the defensive coordinator there with them on a day-to-day basis can maybe do to to possibly bolster that position, one that they need to step up this fall. Yeah, um, the 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 biggest thing that I think is going to be interesting with Durkin too is um, 
if he's going to get a little bit more aggressive in his play calling. I think the defense has the tools there to be successful and be a good defense. But I, you know, I talked to Will Rogers at SEC Media Days, and I said, okay, so you you played against Elko, you played against Durkin. What are some of the differences, and what made you successful last season against Durkin? And he he said. Elko is always going to bring some exotic stuff. He's going to bring stuff from places you're not expecting. And that throws you a little bit off guard. He said, Durkin doesn't really bring a whole lot of pressure from, from crazy places. It's it's a lot of times a, a four man rush. And then it, with against Mississippi state and their air raid, uh, both when he was at Ole Miss and again, when he was at A&M put up that three man front. Uh, and he said, I, I knew exactly what was coming. It was the same thing. And it wasn't a whole lot of pressure outside of the, the three rushers up front. Uh, and, and so I'd be curious to see um, if he gets a little bit more aggressive because uh, pass rush was was not something they were very good at last year. And they might need a little bit of that help, even with the good defensive line that they have uh, getting getting some guys from linebacker, maybe a corner blitz, maybe maybe a safety blitz, uh, bringing some guys from different angles to, to help out that defensive line uh, moving forward. That's the thing that I'm the most curious about from that defense perspective. Well, Travis, let's shift gears for the last few minutes of the podcast this week. Let's talk about the Johnny Manziel Netflix documentary that came out a couple weeks back. You, of course, got to watch the doc a, a little bit ahead of time uh, in your privileged media role uh, and got to talk with the producer of the documentary itself. You know, what were some of your takeaways and just, you know, a little bit from your conversation with the with the producer? Yeah, you know, I think that there was anything, if you haven't seen it yet, I guess, spoiler alerts, but a lot of the things that people heard about, the rumors, the whispers, the the things people were talking about on Twitter and message boards about what was going on with Johnny, most of those things came to light that, yeah, that was happening. He did that. It was that crazy. Um, I think that's a, a key part of it. But, um, you know, I think when you talk about... Um, the documentary as a as a work of journalism and a and a work of art, I guess. Um, I, I really liked the quote that they used at the very end. Uh, it was from Johnny's first media availability. For those of you go back, and remember, you know, we weren't or the media. I wasn't down here yet, but the, the the local media wasn't able to talk to Johnny up until right before the bowl game, his freshman year, because someone didn't let freshmen uh, talk. And so during that press conference, he said something. Someone asked him about if he's bought into this whole Johnny football thing. And and first interesting point to that was he said, you know, oh, I haven't really bought into this whole Johnny football thing. Pause. That has swept the nation and all over Aggieland, which you don't really say something has swept the nation if you haven't, you know, like bought into, you know, that was a, an interesting contradiction, just kind of peeking into Johnny's a uh, uh, little bit into his, his thinking in his head. Uh, but he said, you know, I'm just a guy from Kerrville who likes hanging out with my buddies and being a normal college student. And if, if that wasn't him telling us who he was before he actually showed us who he was, I, I don't know what is, because the whole kind of point of the documentary is that for the most part, football's was a, football was a means to an end from him. He was good at it and he, he was a good competitor, but he liked the 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 fame and the hype and the the parties and the everything that came along with being a winning football quarterback at a major university he liked being with his buddies and being a normal college student necessarily more than he liked being a football player i mean it's telling when they said that 
the Cleveland Browns had an app on the iPad so they could track how much time um, their players were watching film and doing stuff like that. And his was zero. Uh, Eric Burkhardt, his agent, said they told him it was zero minutes. He did not study film uh, while he was in in the NFL. And and but he was going to Vegas the night before games and stuff like that. So stuff that we normally knew. But the thing that kind of stood out to me, and I posed this question to Ryan Duffy when I talked to him, is so much of this show, uh, this documentary, was talking to people in Manziel's close circle who helped him cover things up. When you talk about Uncle Nate's, you know, uh, Nate Fitch, his his buddy, who was kind of his handler through college, who came up with this idea to say that, his family had all of this old oil money and that's how he was sitting courtside at a different NBA game every week and partying with Drake and stuff like that. And that was the Mercedes (laughs) and the Mercedes. It's not that they're not well to do, but they don't have that kind of money. That was just a spin uh, to cover up him signing autographs and getting money when that was illegal in the NCAA. You had uh, Eric Burkhart, his agent talking about how, um, you know, he would, they were pitching to, they had his dad, uh, fake a, a heart attack um, to have him come away from the combine because he had uh, he had slipped up and and might not have been able to pass a a, a drug test at at the uh, at the combine and and so the whole movie is uncovering lies to where when you get to the end of it and you're kind of talking about looking at Johnny putting his foot forward and, and a new step and stuff like that you you kind of go okay either this is true. Or this is just the next step in the spin. This is the next comeback season. And I asked Ryan Duffy, how did you parse through and try to figure out what was true and what was more lies? Because that's what his whole career has been. And he said it wasn't really his concern and part of this project. It is called Untold. It is the, the focal point of it is to get the first person accounts of what is going on uh, in in these people's lives and in these situations from their own mouths. And so he wasn't necessarily, it wasn't his job to adjudicate the stories. So to that point, I kind of left it going, okay, but is it true? You know, is, is he really, they kind of painted him as this empathetic figure at the end, which to some extent, anybody who's dealing with mental health issues is an empathetic figure but but is it is it true is it is he taking step forwards to to, to better his life i don't know you kind of just left me feeling like what what if this is is true what is not who's telling the truth who's exaggerating things it it gave some closure to some things but not really everything alex what do you think i thought i definitely thought it was interesting i mean johnny played at a&m when i was a freshman in high school and just you know the 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 mystic of his figure was just you know enamored in the town growing up i mean he was he was just this mythical being it seemed like uh and so for me it, it was cool to 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 watch it and just kind of you know you know see you know the behind the the scenes some of it whether or not it was true or not um i definitely thought that there was a lot left to be desired though uh, you know, it's a 72 docu- 72 minute documentary, but it easily could have been like three hours with three one hour episodes that, you know, one episode could have been his rise and his time at A&M. The, the second episode could have been focused on, 
you know, starting after the the bowl game against Duke, the crazy comeback in the Chick-fil-A bowl, uh, the, the pre-draft stuff and his time with the Browns. And then the third episode could have been, you know, about his post NFL shenanigans. You know, I, I definitely thought that they rushed through a lot and it, and it definitely seemed like they missed out on getting to talk with some really critical people. You know, Kevin Sumlin was not in the documentary. Uh, not sure if he declined to be in the documentary or not. Uh, you know, they didn't include any of Johnny's teammates at AM or the Browns, nor did they even really acknowledge the fact that, you know, Johnny had this fantastic supporting cast, especially his freshman year at AM, between the offensive line, Mike Evans. Uh, you know, there was hardly any mention of Mike Evans. Johnny Manziel is not Johnny Manziel without Mike Evans. I think anyone who followed AM at that point knows that. Um, and, you know, I thought. I thought Eric Burkhart was fantastic. I mean, the whole the whole stuff about him talking about, you know, the Browns private workout uh, before the draft and he was having to run routes and he had that Twitter thread uh, that he that he kind of elaborated on some of those things. That was fantastic. You know, good on Netflix for getting in touch with Nate Fitch. You know, he he kind of seemed to be like this guy that, you know, people knew about but nobody really knew a lot about him and i feel like nate really filled in a lot of the blanks um but i definitely thought that they they kind of they kind of sold it a little short i thought our friend sam Kahn at the athletic wrote a really good review on the things that the documentary missed uh and i think i agree with a lot of what sam had to say if anyone uh has has read that um but I, I think the bottom line is that, you know, the legend of Johnny is, is real. Um, he, he was, he was kind of this, uh, legendary being at his time at AM. And I think the, the documentary kind of leaves you wondering like, yeah, like what, who, who is this guy? And I, and I think his legend's going to live on. Cause that's just, that's just kind of the guy he is for, for better or worse. That's just kind of my, my take on it. He was very charismatic, and and that's one thing that Ryan Duffy had to say is that no matter you you know this guy's whole story, you know uh, where he's been and what he's done, and you kind of sit down with him thinking he's going to be one thing, and and he said he's he's really personal and he's really enjoyable to he's charismatic. He always had the right thing to say, and so there's part of me that 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 kind of sits back and says, what exactly is the 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 mythos the legend of of johnny menzel and johnny football yeah it's a a, it's a heisman trophy winner the first freshman heisman trophy winner and that's nothing to to scoff at that is legendary in its own right but how much of that legend is myth is creative narrative is spin it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around what it exactly is and what it isn't and for that reason it to me, it kind of discredits itself a little bit, but um, I don't know. Uh, I think, I think it was uh, for the most part to, to Duffy's credit for the most part, it's a part of this untold series where actually uh, I've through the week this week, I've kind of gone back and watched some of the other ones, some of the old ones. There's some a really uh, that one on Jake Paul is actually really, really well done. I, I want to watch um, that one. 
Yeah, it's really good. I also want to watch this one on Florida that's coming up. (laughs) True, true. But most of them are about 70 minutes long. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Manti Teo one, which is one that Duffy did, is is actually two parts. Um, But I think it's the only one that's two parts. So... To their credit, I mean, I they, they I don't know how much creative leeway they were able to have if they could have made it a three-part thing, but for the most part, in what they were doing, they had a little bit of a structure and a template already, because this is kind of the second wave of these uh, Untold uh, series, and so there, there, it seems to me like there was a little bit of constraints on how long it could go, you know, how many people they include in it, and so, um, yeah, I think that they're that, that that should be mentioned as well when we're talking about uh, kind of critiquing the, the the movie and the documentary as well. That's fair. Hey, how about this too? Two out of the three Heisman Trophy finalists from 2012 are now subjects of the Untold documentary series. You mentioned Manti Teo. It's him, Johnny Manziel. They need to do one on Colin Klein just to, to, <laughs> to go three for three and get the trifecta. I don't know what his Untold story is. Um, but I'm sure he's got one. Well, and that's the interesting part. And I'm actually kind of surprised that they might not have had some, a quote or two from Tao just about the Heisman thing, because if you go back and watch a lot of them, they kind of do them in pairs um, together where, uh, you know, they did one on uh, Tim, Do- uh, Tim Doherty, the, the NF- NBA ref who uh, was, be- you know, betting on games and stuff like that. And then they also did one on the Malice at the Palace, which actually Tim Doherty was was officiating at that game, the mm-hmm. fight between the Pistons and uh, the 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 Pistons and the the Pacers, and uh, so they used quote you could tell he was wearing the same thing that he was in both docs documentaries. They used quotes from both of those. Uh, there was one on uh, the one on Jake Paul, and then the one on Christy Martin, the famous female boxer. They got Mike Tyson to talk about both of so they they kind of paired some together uh and, and so it, while they didn't use Tao quotes or anything while they were paired at that same time um it does seem like the thought process kind of went with groupings in this way in some of these series needless to say i think everybody should watch it it's good. a it's it's a it's a good documentary um mm-hmm. it's a good documentary travis i think we covered it what do you think yeah, I think we've talked about just about everything we can. Uh, A&M, we're recording this on Thursday. The A&M athletics schedule officially begins today. It Texas does. Texas A&M soccer facing number, was it number six, Florida State? I know they're playing uh, Florida State. Today at Ellis Field. So the athletic season is officially underway. Volleyball to here to start soon and we're rocking and rolling. Uh, should be a good, pretty good season for the uh, for the soccer team, and uh, volleyball has uh, has a new coach, so we'll have to see how they shift and adjust to to him. Yeah, and you can read uh, some season previews on theeagle.com. I believe you and Robert Cessna wrote a couple of those this week uh, for maybe Tuesday's paper. That is correct. All right. Well, that's another episode of the My Ignition podcast. Be sure to read all of our coverage on Texas A&M athletics and more at theeagle.com. For Travis Brown, I'm Alex Miller. We'll see you next time.